Amen. Hello, everybody. And go ahead and turn to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. Um, so, one of my favorite mo- underrated movies, I don't know if I put it in my all-time favorite movie category, but my favorite underrated movie category, uh, one of the top ones for me is The Count of Monte Cristo. Um, if you ever seen that, Logan loves it. That, uh, <laughs> I see that hand. Um, and so that takes place during Napoleon Bonaparte's, well, when he, he was reigning in France. If you know, he came to power in like 1804 and really is considered um, one of the greatest military minds in history, at least according to the History Channel. And, and I mean, he had taken over most of Europe by 1810. But in 1814, he bit off a little bit more than he could chew, got in trouble with Russia, and then the rest of Europe kind of took that as an opportunity to turn on him. And he gets exiled to the island of Alba or Elba, depending on what's the proper way to say that. And he's there and he's banished. And well, in the movie, there's this character while that's happening, while he's stuck on that island, there's a character who is passing information back and forth with Napoleon to try to plan his escape, which in, re- in real history did happen. He, he escaped that exile and had a sweet 100-day run again as emperor before he was once again exiled. But in the movie, there's a scene where this guy who's loyal to Napoleon is confronted by his son because his son has risen to power in the new regime. He's like a magistrate, and he confronts his father when he finds out what's going on, and he says, you are going to get our whole family accused of treason. And the father says this, and I think it's, it's fascinating. He says, in the end, treason is just a matter of dates. And when the emperor returns, it'll be you who's guilty of treason and I'll be a patriot. And I think, man, that fascinating thought, fascinating thought. Yeah, when Napoleon, if Napoleon were to return and rule for another 20 to 50 years, then yeah, this guy would have been a hero. And I think as we've been going through 1 Peter and seeing what it means to be an exile in a world that is hostile against the gospel, not just in a world that's hostile against the gospel, but in our own flesh, that wants to serve our own sinful desires and passions, that we constantly have to be thinking, no, 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 I belong to a different kingdom, I belong, and I'm gonna be loyal to the king who will return. And on that day when he returns, everyone else will be a traitor, and I'll be seen as loyal to the king of kings. And that's where we've come through, is in the last couple verses when Peter's reminded us yeah, man, they think it's weird that you don't run with them anymore, that this world will think it's weird that you're not just giving in to your earthly, fleshly passions. But the day of judgment's coming. Jesus will return, and he'll judge the world in righteousness. And so that's where we pick up in verse 7. It says this. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled, and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, 
since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So the first thing he says is that the end is at hand. The end of all things is at hand. And there are those who think that he's just talking about um, the end of the Jewish system and that he's talking about A.D. 70 when the temple's destroyed, but that seems weird considering the audience. But also, this terminology is not unusual in the New Testament or to Peter, that typically... In the, in the New Testament, when a phrase like the end of all things or the last days or the end of the age, when those types of terms are used, they're used to talk about the time from the first advent of Christ to the second advent of Christ, to talk about the time when Christ came the first time in humility and meekness as a baby in Bethlehem, ultimately to lay down his life, to the time when Christ returns as King of Kings and Lord of Lords to issue his righteous judgment and establish his eternal kingdom. That, that, that whatever that time period ends up being is referred to as the last things, as the end of days, as the end of the age. In 1 Peter 1, 20 and 21, he, he said it this way. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God who, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. First, or Hebrews 1, 1 through 2 uses this phrase, and I'm gonna read Hebrews 9, 26. It says it this way. For when he would have had to suffer, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he, speaking of Jesus, has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So Jesus' first coming ushers in the last of all things, the end of all things, the last of times. So we would say that Jesus' coming, and when Peter is writing, is the beginning of the end, and then there's gonna be the end of the end, and where we fall during these end times, we don't know, we don't know. This what, when Jesus met with his disciples right before the ascension, and they said, will you at this time establish your kingdom? Jesus' response to them, and by extension all of us, was to say, it's not for you to know times and seasons, but it's for you to be my witnesses. Jerusalem, Judea, to the ends of the earth. It's an awesome scene. Remember when Jesus says that and then he flies up from the ground and rides a chariot of cloud into heaven? <laughs> it's one of my favorite scenes and I've been preaching that in uh, summer camp. I love it because the angel shows up and the angel says, why are you guys staring into heaven? And if I was there... 
I, I don't know if I could have bit my tongue because I would have wanted to say, because uh, that was the coolest thing I've ever seen in my entire life. Like, Jesus just rode a cloud chariot into heaven. That's why. <laughs> and But the angel says, yeah, and he's gonna come back in the same way. And the teaching is, while we live in this time, the time between the times, be busy about one thing. Be busy about one thing. What's that? Ministering the gospel of Jesus. So, he says, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, because of that, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. That so often in Scripture, when the end times are talked about, the main idea is not to give us a chart, right? The end of all things that is at hand. Therefore, make as many charts and sell as many books as you can. Like, it's not what he said, right? The point, is, it's fine. Yeah, I, I would capitalize on it if I could write a fiction book about the end times and capital. I'm not judging anybody. Kings to you, my friend. But that's not the point. The point is that we prepare and live in a manner consistent with people who know we're not long for this world, that this world is gonna end, that Christ, the real emperor, is coming back, and we want to be faithful to him. It's, it shows us how we're meant to live, but that we should live with that anticipation. Every believer should live knowing that Jesus could return in their lifetime. This is why Jesus told the disciples what he told them in Acts chapter one, right? And even if we are not living in the end of the end, we still only have a lifetime before we leave this world, right? In one sense, it doesn't matter. Our, our time is short, this life is but a vapor. We know our time is short. Whether Jesus comes back in our lifetime or whether I get to live another 20, 30, 40 years, whatever the Lord would give me, that time is short. This world is not my home. I'm an exile, I'm a pilgrim. I belong to the kingdom of Christ. Listen to 2 Peter 3, verse eight. In response to people saying, man, y'all still living like this? Like, you're willing to go to prison you're willing to get beat up? You're telling me you're willing to die for the, the message that Jesus is the only way and he's coming back? Where is he? Where is he, Peter? You're gonna die for this? You're gonna get crucified for this? Where is he? Verse eight, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that anyone should perish, but that all should reach repentance. The day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since, here again is the main point, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? So Peter's telling us that hope, that reality should sober us up, should sober us up, should make us live in a manner that is 
worthy of the Lord, that is holy, that is self-controlled. He uses the word sober like the opposite of drunk. But he uses it in a, a, as like a metaphor. Not that it means, that it doesn't mean getting drunk. It, it means that. It doesn't mean less than that. It just means a whole lot more than that. It should give us a picture in our mind because he's saying, man, be sober-minded. Don't be drunk on the passions and the cares of this world so that your mind is too clouded to pray, so that you don't think straight, so that you don't see the, the world the way it really is. Like if you've been around somebody who's inebriated, right, who's drunk, you know, man, they're, they're not seeing things clearly. Their thought process, processes aren't right. And he says, man, don't be like that. Don't be like that. You, you can get so sucked into the here and now that it hinders your prayers, that it would render your prayers devoid of power. Listen to what he, he said back in chapter one, verses 13 through 16. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So this could be anything, right? Don't be drunk on entertainment, on accumulating wealth. Don't be drunk on a pursuit of health, politics. It could be family, ministry, vacations, just being busy. It could be anything that would seek to steal our affection and our loyalty. This is why, you know, we keep pointing back to our study in Daniel. And when Daniel is first brought into Babylon, and he's had horrible things happen to him, but then he's brought in, he's cleaned up, he's given fancy robes, and they take him into the king's court, and there's a table of food spread out before him. It's why at that moment Daniel resolves in his heart that he will not defile himself. Why? What's happening? He knows that what Nebuchadnezzar is trying to do is win his affection. Get him drunk on good food and good drink, a comfortable life. Daniel, Daniel resolved in that moment, no. Yeah, I, will, will I serve the city for the city's good? Yeah, Jeremiah told those who went into exile to do that. Yeah, while you live in exile, serve people, love people, live for the good of others. But ultimately, your loyalty, your fidelity belongs to Christ alone. So Daniel resolved in his heart, man, I'm not gonna sin against the Lord. I'm not gonna give my affections to Nebuchadnezzar. Only one thing, will, this is from John Piper, only one thing will make you a person a prayer. That is, a person connected with reality. Namely, sobering up from the addictive, inebriating power of worldliness. If you are drunk with worldliness and can only think of the pleasures of the world, then you will have no taste for heaven and no desire for prayer. So as we see things for what they really are, as we sober up, we're to pray, to pray for the lost, to pray for the church, for our unity, faithfulness, for our perseverance and witness, to pray for personal purity, 
to pray for forgiveness of sin and ultimately for the kingdom of God to come. Consistent praying will keep our focus on the kingdom of God. It will keep our eyes on Christ. It will keep our affections on the Lord. It'll keep us from being seduced by worldly passions. So, in light of living at the end of all things, we're to be sober-minded and to pray. And then he says this in verse 8. Above all, he's emphasizing this, above all, keep loving one another earnestly. And this has been Peter's emphasis, brotherly love, loving one another. He says in 122, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. He's serious about us loving one another with a passion earnestness. He's recalling Jesus' teachings that he had received in person. John 13, 34 through 35. Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. But then he tells us, one of the outcomes of loving each other this way. Look at what he says. Keep loving one another earnestly since, because, love covers a multitude of sins. And this is, I think, one of the most beautiful phrases in the New Testament. That's just awesome. It's been blowing me away this week and especially today coming in to this study. Man, it's just beautiful. But let me first just briefly mention what it doesn't mean. What it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that when we love one another this way that it somehow adds to the atoning work of Christ or that if I've sinned, but if I love you well, it'll atone for my sin. It's not what he's saying. Our forgiveness, our our sin in guilt and shame being removed is only possible by the once for all work of Jesus. Jesus' atonement. He covered our sin. And that is the most beautiful picture in the New Testament, is the picture of the mercy seat before the throne of God. The mercy seat covering the Ark of the Covenant with the broken law, the law that we have broken by our very lives as enemies of God. But on the mercy seat, the picture that Jesus comes into the Holy of Holies the one that wasn't made by hands, but the heavenly reality, into the presence of the Father. And on the mercy seat, he sheds his blood, and it covers our sin. It makes an atonement. It satisfies God's wrath. We're no longer seen through our sin, our guilt, or our shame. Christ alone did that. But what we're called to do is to then see one another's sins in light of the atonement in light of what Christ has done. It doesn't mean sweeping sins underneath the rug. It doesn't mean that we don't take sin seriously, that it doesn't get dealt with through discipleship and church discipline. There's a difference between privacy and secrecy. It doesn't mean that there are sins that don't get dealt with and dealt with severely. Right, that the whole Bible isn't in every single verse, right? We, we can't just take it out of context. We need to see it for what it's saying and what it's not saying. Yeah, it is very loving 
in a situation where children are being abused, where children are being neglected. It's loving to confront the parents, to exercise church discipline, and if necessary, to involve the law. If there's, a, if there's a wife who's being abused, physically assaulted by her husband, the most loving thing you can do is to counsel her to get somewhere safe and to notify the authorities. That's, it's not talking about covering sin up in the sense that we would dismiss the consequences that those sins dictate. But in general, what he's saying What he is saying is that we are to forgive and forbear with one another's sin. Sin that that doesn't mean calling the police. Sins of pride, envy, gossip, slander. Are they to be dealt with? Yeah, but we're to see it all through the perfect atonement of Christ. Love is ready to forgive. The love that God has poured out into our heart stands ready to forgive sin because the love of God poured out into our hearts keeps us keenly aware of the reality that we have been forgiven of the greatest treason ever, our own sin against God. Love forbears. Love is patient with someone who's immature, who's harsh, who's passive-aggressive, who's selfish, who's prideful, who's insecure, and so on. So what does this look like? Man, it looks like, yeah, that I don't attack somebody or rebuke somebody for every possible sin. Can you imagine? (laughs) Can you, uh, some of us won't have to imagine too hard because you know somebody like this. Can you imagine living with somebody who pointed out every single sin and shortcoming in you? Don't look at your spouse, right? Like, can you imagine that? Every time you sin, somebody points it out, pokes their finger in your chest. You know what that would be? Miserable. You know what happened? Violence. You are gonna snap. That is, like, that is not what the disciple of Christ is called to. There is a place for, yeah, showing patience. Was that a godly attitude? No, but you know what I trust? I trust the work of the Holy Spirit in that person's life. And there will be times when what love does, I'm I'm covering that, I'm seeing that through the blood of Christ, which means my brother and sister, he or she is already forgiven of that. God does not see or treat my brother or sister as guilty of their sin. He treats them as forgiven and redeemed and reconciled, so I'm gonna choose to do the same. Love will keep you from gossip, slander, bitterness, envy, hatred. Love will keep us all, will keep us from all words, thoughts, and attitudes that would seek to destroy our unity and ultimately our witness. Listen to this. Love doesn't seek to expose someone's sin in order to shame them, to destroy their testimony, or just to see them lose. Love seeks to cover their sin with the reality that Jesus loves them and has already forgiven them. Love seeks to see one another for who we are in Christ, not who we were in sin. Love covers a multitude of sins. He goes on and says in verse nine, 
Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Hospitality, to live with an open home and an open life, open to knowing, serving, and encouraging our brothers and sisters in Christ. So, you know, in the ancient world, uh, folks talk about this in context, like there weren't good hotels, there weren't good places to stay, and so the idea was as believers were traveling, Christians should have an open home, bring them in, let them stay with you for a day or two, feed them, take care of them, minister to them, that's the picture. Now, that picture isn't our reality, but it doesn't mean that we're not still under this command, that we're to show hospitality. Because of the times that we live, we should show hospitality to one another. I'm, con- I'm, personally, I'm personally inconsistently offering a place to stay to folks coming through. I do this all the time. I'll tell them, you can stay at Zach's, <laughs> you can t- stay at Spencer's, Sean's, Brody, Matt, they've got awesome places. Would you like their contact information? I'll share that with you <laughs> without giving them a heads up. Be more like me. <laughs> you know, hospitality is not gonna look the same for all of us. It's just not. And, but I think sometimes we psych ourselves out because we think, man, there are people who are just gifted in hospitality. People who make you feel so welcome, um, you feel at home, like the first night staying at somebody's house where you feel comfortable to open up the refrigerator and grab what you want. There are those people. And then there are the rest of us, <laughs> you know? And you're like, I don't know, they said I could get water, but he, he's, he also seems nervous about it, I don't know. And <laughs> but it's, not, it's just not gonna look, but in general, to live with an open life where we really want to minister to people and yeah, to use whatever the Lord's given us. I, I think the spirit of hospitality is to see that everything I have is a gift from the Lord and should be leveraged for the good of the church and a witness to the world, right? And, and so whatever that's gonna look like for you and to do it without grumbling. For us, for us really, it, the, the biggest thing that in most weeks during the year is we open our home for our discipleship group. It's awesome. About three o'clock on every Tuesday, we say, hey guys, it's time to clean for a discipleship group. And we are specific because our kids know that what that means is grab everything and throw it on mom and dad's bed and then lock the door. Yeah, and do that with joy. <laughs> Don't be mad. At the end of the night, we're gonna bring it all back out and just throw it. <laughs> Without grumbling, it's hospitality. It, <laughs> It's a big deal to Jesus. It's a really big deal to Jesus. Listen to Matthew 25, 34 through 40. Then the king will say to those on his right, time of the day of judgment, come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when do we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when do we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when do we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of my brothers, you did it to me. A spirit of hospitality, it, it's a big deal to Jesus. It's a big deal to Jesus. 
He goes on as we continue to flesh out what it looks like to love one another well. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. As good stewards of God's varied grace, whoever speaks as one who speaks, or oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. So he begins a discussion on gifts, gracious gifts. And I think that's how the word would be translated. It's like the idea of a gift of grace given to us by God, not for us, but for others. We're stewards of gifts so that we can serve other people in their process of sanctification, their perseverance. And he, and he, here, Peter just breaks it down into two categories. He says, for some, this is a speaking gift. From, for some, this is a serving gift. But I, I just real quickly wanted to do a quick theology of gifts, and this will be quick. There's gonna be a list that comes up behind me if you wanna take notes. I, I think it's worth looking at these, these gifts that the scripture lays out, because we do, we should examine, okay, where am I most motivated to serve other people? How am I most gifted by God to serve other people, and how am I accomplishing that within the local church, within a local church? So these lists that we're gonna, I'm gonna tell you about, so there's here in 1 Peter 4.10, Paul's list are in Romans chapter 12, 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, like the chapters 12 through 14, and Ephesians 4, okay? Ephesians 4, 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, Romans 12, and then here in 1 Peter. These lists vary in size and content. Together, they mention about 20 gifts. Several cite teaching, prophecy, serving, encouraging, leading, giving, and healing, but no two lists are identical and none are exhaustive. None tries to enumerate and categorize all classes of God-given talent. Careful reading suggests that these lists are partial. That's from Dan Doriani. At minimum, what we can see is that all believers have at least one spiritual gift, or Paul's favorite term, a gracious gift. A gift is given by God for us to use as a means of grace to other believers for their sanctification and perseverance. In Romans 12, 4, Paul tells us we don't all have the same function. We don't all have the same gifting. Even those who would have the same gift, we don't all have it to the same measure. So we don't all have the same function. From, be, from the beginning, God created mankind for diversity within unity. We are one body with many parts. So, you see this list. Under speaking, in general, would fall apostleship, discernment, encouragement, evangelism, knowledge, prophecy, shepherding, teaching, get to tongues, interpretation, wisdom. Now, and there's a lot of there's a lot of, that could be said about each one of these. But prophecy in general refers to speech that reports something that God spontaneously brings to mind or reveals to the speaker, but which is spoken in merely human words, not words of God. Therefore, it can have mistakes and must be tested or evaluated. That's from the ESV study Bible. That 
often when we think of prophecy, we just think of like Old Testament prophet and New Testament prophet where they're getting a unique and specific word from God that is authoritative. But often when we see prophecy in the New Testament, it it is this. It's God giving, whether it's to a, a preacher as he prepares what he's preaching and not everything that he says is the very word of God from scripture, but insight that the Lord gives him. Or I think even more common would be in counseling situations. And, and, and a lot of folks in this church who will never stand behind the pulpit experience this when you're counseling another believer, when, when, you're, when you're talking about a circumstance or a relationship and this gift comes alive as the Lord brings scripture to your mind to apply to somebody else's situation. That is a gracious gift from God, not primarily meant for you, but for the edification, the building up of another believer. And, and so many, serving gifts, administration, creativity, giving, healing, hospitality, mercy, miracles, serving in general. Listen to this. The gift is ultimately to be used by the believer and the power of the Spirit for the glory of God. The use of our gifts should humble us and place our attention and worship on the God who gives them. John Piper said this, each one has received a gift and the function of that gift is very simple. It is, a, it is meant for service or ministry and that means being an agent or conduit or channel or vehicle of God's grace to others. Gifts are to be God-centered, used for the building up of the body. That's just awesome to pause and think about that. God has specifically gifted you. Maybe you have multiple gifts, and, and, and there's no hierarchy. There's no, like, more important. That's the illustration that the, the Bible gives us. It's like, it's like a body, and they, like, the foot can't say to the hand, oh, I wish I was a hand. It stinks down here. Like, it's like, that's not the point. Don't laugh at that, that was, that was horrible. And like that's not the point. The point has been we need one another. And, and, and I say that, yes, like, and, and the reformed grace-only people are already, re- they're ready to throw a stone. Listen to me, we need one another. Within God's sovereign grace, he has chosen to use us in one another's life for our edification, our building up, our persevering faithful to the end. That's why the writer of Hebrews says, man, consider, like, think hard about how you might stir up one another to love and good works so that you would be faithful to the end. This is, I mean, I say this phrase a lot, and I know it probably sound like a broken record if you've been coming for years, but just think it's so important. And not just on Sunday night, but when your small group meets throughout the week in your prayer time, Like, you should think strategically on how you can build up other believers and that you, every one of us, should prepare for Sunday night just as much as whoever is gonna stand behind the podium and preach or whoever is gonna lead worship. We should all come prepared. We all have a job to do because we've all been gifted for the same purpose. Let's build one another up. Let's encourage one another. Let's together finish faithful. And God gets the glory. God gets the glory. We do it by his strength in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ 
And then he gives us this small doxology. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever, amen. It's a beautiful picture. We're living in exile together. And right now, it feels like we're on the outside. It feels like we're the ones who are betraying our desires and our flesh and the world and our culture, and we are. We, right now, we might be seen as those who are committing treason against the way the world is going. But that's a matter of dates, because Christ is returning. The end of all things is at hand, and when he returns, we'll be found faithful. And that's what he'll say. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the kingdom prepared for you. Everyone else will be considered a traitor, and that's why we are to be about one thing, making the gospel known. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, love you. Thank you for your word. God, we thank you for your varied grace that you would use each one of us to serve each other. I pray that in this church, in Red Oak Church, that we would be faithful to you, that we'd be committed to you, and that we would love one another well. I pray for those who don't know you, that in your kindness you'd lead them to repentance and faith, that you'd rescue them. Lord, I pray that you would continue to give us a greater influence in our area for the gospel. God, we pray that you would would be glorified and that your kingdom would come and that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Love you, Lord. In Christ's name, amen.